0: Welcome back to The Courier Weekly. I'm Danny Giacopelli, Courier's editorial director. Today on the show, we catch up with Dan Frommer from The New Consumer. While the pandemic has broadly benefited e-commerce companies, it hasn't been good for everyone selling things online particularly those that consider themselves curators. We'll find out more why from Dan a bit later on. But first, this week, I wanted to really dig deep into a topic that's caught our attention at Courier lately. You might have seen the words, no code, everywhere you look. In the last few months, it's been popping up everywhere. But what does it mean? Well, sometimes it's referred to in the context of a movement, the no code movement. Other times, it's considered a category. Startups classify themselves as no-code companies. But basically, it refers to software, platforms, or tools that give you greater creative control without needing to know how to code to tell the computer what to do. Well, my first guest today is Joe Cohen. He's the founder and CEO of Universe, a no-code platform backed by Google Ventures that basically allows you to quickly build a website on your phone. Joe's based in New York, and he's a super passionate advocate for the no-code movement. And he's a good spokesperson for how he thinks no-code can cause an explosion in entrepreneurship in the coming years. Here's
1: Joe. I've been thinking about no-code before it had a label. You know, I've been obsessed with this space for over seven years. No-code is an incredibly imprecise label. It's a shorthand that's useful because... It's sort of category-defining, and we're having this conversation in the context of it, which makes it useful. But in and of itself, there's no objective definition. I mean, we can parse what it means. I can tell you what I think of when I hear no code and what it means at Universe. But basically, the way I see it is, if you consider the evolution of software, we are shifting from a world where you needed to talk to the machine like the machine works to a progression where you can speak to the machine in your own language as a human and the machine can figure out what you mean. And so you're not having to sort of change how you speak so that you make sense to a human. That's at a high level what it means. And so when we say no code, we're saying that you don't need to use code to tell the computer what to do. Before 1984, if you wanted to use a computer, the way that you spoke to the computer just to use it, just to check your messages, whatever, you needed to write code. Like everything, if you wanted to open a file, if you wanted to create a Word document, you were literally writing code to do everything. You were using what was called a command line.
0: Yeah, the famous black screen with the blinking green text.
1: Exactly. And then in 84, Apple came out with the first Mac, and the real innovation was this graphical user interface. It was called a GUI, and that GUI allowed you to manipulate and use a computer without having to write on a command line, write code. And we've been living in the wake of that revolution. So from 84 until now, and the iPhone and mobile phones are an evolution of that, we've seen what happens when you make using a computer not require code. But now what people are awakening to is that that's only one half of the story. The other half of the story is actually creating with the computer. So not just using a computer, but creating with the computer. And it turns out, That with creating with a computer, we're still in the dark ages. For most good creation, you need to write code. And so we have yet to hit that sort of gooey inflection moment. We're at that precipice right now. And that's what I think the world is reacting to. And it's incredibly exciting because as much as the computer is a really useful tool as a consumer or a user, it's exponentially more useful as a creator. And we've seen what's happened when a tiny group of people is able to write code. changes the whole world. Imagine what is possible if you do that at the scale of all the users of the Internet. So now once we sort of make that leap towards, okay, it is possible for people to create the Internet, create software without writing code, there are different versions of that. It's not monolithic. And so templates were sort of the V1 of this. And templates are absolutely no code. You don't need to write code. But the thing with templates is that they're not generative. What I mean by that is the template is prescriptive. When you start using a template, you know more or less at the end of the day what your site's going to look like. That's the point. The point is to show you a vision of what it's going to be like and allow you to get there. But that is very different than code. Code is inherently open ended, it's composable. You can take any two pieces of code, put them together and make a unique combination that literally has never been made before. And so when you start writing code and you end up, you have no idea in a way where you're going to go. And that's the magic of it because it allows for open-ended expression. I'm going to geek out for one second here. One way of thinking about it is consider the English language. Every day, every human who uses the English language is composing completely unique sentences that perhaps never in the history of the world have been created. And you don't need to be a poet or a savant of any sort to do that. It's just the natural course of using a language that you're creating all of these unique combinations. But the magical thing is that someone can understand that without knowing that precise combination of words. So we can have a conversation. I could string together this unique combination, and you'll get it. The question is, could you do that with a no-code system? Could you have a system that was composable in the way that English is composable, in the way that code is composable, where the outcome is not predetermined, but is not esoteric, does not require that you learn some Byzantine language, that you figure out how to divine out what a computer actually means and works. And so that's the challenge in the way that we interpret it. It's almost like, you know, can we build this like new alphabet for the internet that allows a person who, is not a professional technician to manipulate things and express an idea online in an open-ended, you know, sort of way.
0: And from such a world that's being created, I mean, if you could break it down into something as crude as winners and losers, I mean, I imagine at first people might say, oh, well, there'll be no need for programmers in the future. But actually, it seems like you'll need more programmers than ever to make such a world exist.
1: Yeah, I mean, I do think that the nature of who programs will change. I think that to make a simple web page, you're not going to need a programmer in the future. And you shouldn't. That's not a role that you need humans to do. Like, we often think of automation as taking away factory workers' jobs. Automation will take away a lot of knowledge worker and software jobs. Absolutely.
0: But won't you need more programmers to kind of sustain the back end of that no-code system?
1: You will absolutely need programmers to build the infrastructure for it, but it's a further specialization and abstraction. It's not clear if you'll need more people, you might need far less. You know, I like the analogy of, have you heard of the Linotype machine? So in the early 1800s, if you went to the basement of the New York Times building in Manhattan, you would see hundreds and hundreds of people individually typesetting pages of the newspaper for the next morning. And they'd be doing it in a mad dash. And they literally take every single letter and place it on the press and lay out every article. There are people trying to come up with the machine that automated this process. guy came up with this thing called the Linotype. And basically, you could sit in a typewriter, and it would pull the letters manually and set them into the press. And what ended up happening was, for every six people who were manually doing this, one person could operate a Linotype. People were going nuts, like riots in the streets. You know, people were burning down these machines because it was taking away their jobs. What ended up happening was, the Linotype 1... And the price of publishing plummeted, right? Because you only needed one person to operate that machine. And so what happened was the New York Times started adding new sections to the newspaper. So they had a metro section, uh, you know, a national session, a politics session. And then people started new newspapers and new magazines. And so you had this sort of flourishing of publishing because it had been democratized and the price, the cost had come down. I think the same thing is going to happen with software. So I think that you're going to have some limbo period where there is something of a loss of jobs, but I think that you're going to have a long-term of flourishing. At the end of the day, humans should be doing what only humans can do, which is be creative and be sort of imaginative and ingenious and not sort of rote labor. And the reality is that a lot of programming right now is just like construction. It's not thinking work. And so I do think over time, you're going to have a loss of those kinds of jobs and a gain of, you know, more sophisticated ones. And that's going to be better for everybody.
0: What would the macro view look like? I mean, will that lead to the creation of more startups?
1: I think so. In my vision of the future, you have billions of people starting companies, but they don't look like traditional companies. And sometimes there are only one people working on it. Sometimes a person might have five things that they're working on. You know, in a way, it's very interesting. Like pre-industrial revolution... Everyone was a maker. Everyone was a business person. Everyone was an entrepreneur. Then in the industrial era, we realized that, you know, you could have machines, they can build stuff. We could actually turn humans into like quasi-machines and build these meta-machines where humans plug in as like cogs in the wheel. And they could produce a vast amount of goods and humans would specialize. And and that's the weight that we live in. That made the modern world. But I actually think that we're, in a weird way, going to go into a post-industrial, almost pre-industrial era where everyone, again, is going to become a maker and a creator. And that's for two reasons. One is by necessity. The machines are eating all of the jobs that were sort of automatable in the way that a human needed to do it in the past, in the industrial era. But the other is that it's now possible. With literally a phone, someone can make music. They can write a book. They can start a business with this this device that fits in your pocket. So I think for those two reasons, you're going to see this sort of individual creator revolution.
0: Do you think, though, that it will lead to more failure? Because right now, there's a certain amount of funds that you need to start a company uh, to hire a programmer, and that carries with it a bit of risk that not everybody can take on. So if you democratize it even more, it might lead to everybody and their cousin starting a business, but they might not all have the chops to do so.
1: But that's great. Who cares? You know, like, the way I look at it is, of course, there will be more failure, and we should have a thousand times more companies started. And you're probably gonna have a thousand times more failures. But you're also gonna have a thousand times more winners. And think about how incredible the world would be if you had a thousand more winners, a thousand more brands that were interesting, a thousand more companies that were building useful tools, a thousand more people who were thinking about how the world could be better. That's a better world for everybody. So, one way of thinking about it is like, consider Instagram. It used to be that before Instagram, To be a photographer, you needed to be a professional. And way back in the day, like, you literally needed to develop the film yourself. So you weren't just a photographer. You were a developer, and you were, like, a chemist, and you were doing all these things. And then Kodak came around and made developing easier, so it further democratized it. But the cost is still prohibitive. Fast forward Instagram. Take 1,000 pictures a day, you know, on your phone for free. People are doing it, you know, 1,000, a million times more than ever was done, and we're consuming images at a faster rate. So are there more crappy photographers? Absolutely. Like, are there there's like a million times more crappy photographers, but there's also a million times more good photographers. And we're all collectively getting better on a daily basis at doing it. So the thing that people don't realize is like entrepreneurship isn't like some innate skill. It, it is a practice like any other. And the more that you can build the muscle of it, the higher likelihood that you are that you're gonna find success. So yeah, you're going to have more failures, but failure is the driver of future success. It's how we actually practice. And so you know, if we could build this muscle in a sort of hyperscale and in a hyperspeed, you're going to end up with a generation of people who are much better at creating things and bringing things into the world. I would argue that the reason why the rate of failure is so high is because this muscle is incredibly undeveloped and we don't have you know, the resources and the ability to actually flex it out in a a low stakes way. So yes, I think you're going to see a lot more failure. I think you're going to see a lot more success. And I think it's going to be a much more interesting and engaging and dynamic world.
0: That was Joe Cohen from Universe. And just before we go, Courier Weekly listeners should know Dan Frommer well by now. He's a business journalist, and he runs the always excellent newsletter, The New Consumer. Dan recently wrote a great piece about how, while COVID-19 has broadly benefited e-commerce, it hasn't been good for every single player in the market. Recently, a really great online clothing store called Need Supply announced it was closing its doors. Dan thinks this is just another signal that the curator business case for multi-brand e-commerce is disappearing. I wanted to find out what he means by that, so I rang him up at his home in Los Angeles. Here's Dan.
2: It all started with a pair of shoes. I forgot the event, but I needed a nice pair of shoes and it's hard to find the right nice pair of shoes. And my wife, who is a fashion writer, knew of Need Supply. It had been already fairly big online at that point and found me this really incredible collaboration that Need Supply had done with Alden, which is kind of a a heritage footwear brand. And it was great. It was like the perfect combination of like a classic you know shoe what would you call it a silhouette but in kind of an updated a really nice like kind of warm black nubuck leather and i loved it it was great it was definitely the most money i'd ever spent on shoes till that point and actually until now but i, I wear them all the time they're my kind of nice shoes and uh, i love them and obviously Need supply
0: has recently shut down you know this really really great men's retail brand. And it's not the first time because as you point out in your piece, you know, Union Made, another really good specialist menswear online retail brand shut down almost a year ago to the day, you say?
2: Yeah, it's happening. We're seeing it. And some of it is pandemic related and and some of it's not. It's tempting to try to take different points and try to draw a line between them. Each of these businesses probably has pretty distinct problems of their own, whether it's rent or, you know, whatever it is, you know, Union Made was online and global. It was also a store in San Francisco. And my understanding is that that store itself is what kind of drove a lot of their financial problems. But anyway, you know, we see this happening now where these multi-brand retailers that are online and global and have built a very strong reputation and fan base and audience and email subscriber list can still go under. And Need Supplies is the one that, uh, you know, of the last six to 12 months is the one that kind of hurts me the most. I liked it a lot because, and this is kind of, a you know, as I talk about in the piece, it's really hard being mid-sized. That's kind of true in a lot of industries. I think it's definitely true in retail where when you're tiny and you can really control your costs, and maybe there's just a few of you you can kind of eke it out, I think. If you're huge and have scale and your suppliers depend on you to write big orders and you kind of have everything, you know, I'm thinking like a Mr. Porter or something like that. Um, You know, I, I don't know what their finances look like, but they're still in business right now, you know, or certainly in Amazon, you can make it work. But if you're this mid-sized thing, it's, it was actually a really great product for the users. They had a good selection, but not too big of a selection. So it still felt like pretty much most of the things in the store made sense. Like they appealed to kind of what the need supply shopper would want, you know, and, and they sold women's clothes. They also sold home goods and design and books and that sort of stuff. But it all felt cohesive. And it was kind of, you know, the nice part of being midsize. But I think it's hard, you know, if you're competing to acquire customers with much bigger players, and then if you're competing for mindshare with the smaller players that can still do really interesting small projects, it gets tricky. And in Need Supplies case, they'd also been forced to, or, you know, maybe forced as too strong, but they'd also taken on... Another brand, Totokayo, which was a kind of a struggling retailer from Seattle that was also iconic and then had opened this store in New York City that was just a money pit. So certainly, you know, a lot of moving pieces, but alas, when a pandemic hits, all plans go out the window and it looks like this will be one of the last weeks for Need Supply.
0: And in your piece, you point out the fact that, you know, once upon a time you would go to one of these Online menswear, womenswear destinations to be told what to buy, and now you might go to Instagram or you might go to TikTok or you know you might go to an influencer that you trust and not necessarily type in www.whatever.com to find out what to buy.
2: Yeah, the thrust of my piece is that you know curation used to be something really unique that a retailer could do. If you know if you only shopped from the brands themselves, which not too long ago you couldn't even do because they were all Selling wholesale, you know, you got a very monotonous experience. These days, pretty much every brand, except for some of the top, top luxury brands, are trying to build a direct to consumer business. They have, you know, an online store that is hopefully well run. They have their own stores in many cases. They do some interesting collaborations with other brands, but usually the goal for them is to build a long term direct relationship with the customer and sell their goods directly to them. Even if it's overseas shipping, especially here in the US, if you order stuff from Europe, sometimes the shipping makes you a little uncomfortable, but then you save the VAT so it equals out. And so the multi-brand retailer, which you know for the last couple of decades had this really special thing going, which is this sense of curation. Like we're gonna bring together all these brands, many of which you've never heard of before, from around the world. We're going to showcase them all. We're going to, you know, a need supplies case. I'm a designer. So this matters to me, a web designer, but they had really great photography. There was high res. And when I'm deciding whether or not to invest in a, in a piece of clothing or a design piece, I want to see the grain of the fabric, you know, and it's just, that's the kind of little thing that so many online stores overlook. They, you know, they set their image quality so low. They don't Upload super high res stuff, and that was one of the great things about neat supplies. You could always get a really good sense of what you were buying. They merchandised it very well. I loved their extraordinarily minimalist website. You could even ask, like, "Where's the logo?" It, does, you know, that's the whole point. It felt relaxing, but also like gave me a sense of discovery, and that was a great part of it. And then this sense of curation. Nowadays, we're all curators. You know, I mentioned in the piece, but the last two kind of investment clothing purchases I made, I learned about through email newsletters. I didn't know that this tiny store in Paris that I like was collaborating with Solomon Shoes on a weird pair of shoes, but I sure bought them. And more recently, a jacket that I kind of didn't know existed, I bought through discovering it through an email newsletters. And I bought those both direct from the brand, essentially. So curation kind of w- which used to be the, the role of the retailer is now just something that that happens all the time everywhere whether it's an Instagram feed or an email newsletter or a Pinterest board you know th- that's not to say that you can't survive as a retailer because curation is out there but i think it's especially over the next couple of decades it's probably going to redraw the map of what we think of as a store we have this whole creator economy and a lot of them are looking to build businesses through e-commerce. Some of that will just be traditional affiliate marketing. Some of it could be, you know, an actual storefront that they set up. And whether they hold inventory or do drop shipping, I'm sure there's gonna be a lot of different options out there. But, you know, the idea that today we're all publishers, maybe next week we're all retailers is kind of interesting. Not sure who's gonna do customer service for all for all those influencer stores, but someone will have to figure that out. So, big picture, this kind of sense of creating a bunch of products, a bunch of brands, which, you know, was really the, you know, half the point of being a retailer. As I say in the story, you know, taste and real estate, curation and distribution were the things that really powered retail for a long time. And now it's a little trickier. They're competing with their own suppliers, you know, they're competing with much bigger companies to acquire customers and, you know, really if I want to buy the same four items, I could end up buying them direct from the vendor or the the brand, you know, either at the same price or even a lower price or as part of a loyalty scheme or or something that certainly, if it doesn't make the retailer weaker, it at least takes away some of the relationship that used to exist.
0: And that was Dan Frommer from The New Consumer. And you could sign up to Dan's email newsletter at newconsumer.com. And that's it for the show this week. As always, if you've got any questions, comments, or feedback about anything at all, you can reach me at Daniel at CourierMedia.co. And make sure to head to our website to sign up and subscribe to our latest workshop products. We've got a great new email newsletter out and a podcast that breaks down key business terms and tells you how you can apply them to your own business. I'm Daniel Giacopelli. The Courier Weekly is back again next Friday.